From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Alexander Petrushkin. Now, if it were considered socially acceptable to have favorite offenders with regards to true crime, well, then Alexander would be in my top five. Now, that's not to say that I'm okay with the things that he did because I'm not, Not by any stretch of the imagination. But I believe some things he experienced in his childhood could have a direct correlation with his later behavior. There's no real way of knowing with 100% certainty, but in my opinion, there is a strong case for him not actually being born to kill. His case just seems much more black and white compared to most serial killers. So let's jump right in. Alexander Pachushkin was known as the chessboard killer, the Bitsa Park maniac. He was born in the northeastern part of Moscow in the Soviet Union on April 9, 1974, making him an Aries. So as we always do, let's get into some history for that region at that time. The Soviet Union from 1964 to about 1982 was known as the Brezhnev era. The economy was great, people were doing well for themselves, but as things go, there was beginning to be a gradual shift in the economy. Social and political issues were mounting, thus ushering in the era of stagnation. Um, According to the BBC, In 1968, Soviet and Warsaw Pact troops invaded Czechoslovakia. This was a a calculated action so that they could then set the precedence that communist countries had the right to, quote, intervene other communist states if they felt their communist policies were being threatened, all working toward an international communist movement. The next year, the Soviet Union and China had an undeclared war over the border between the two countries called the Sino-Soviet border conflict. The biggest conflict was about where the exact line of the border was with regards to a river. The Soviet border service were reporting that the Chinese military were becoming very active in that region. So, of course, the Soviet Union increased their military numbers as a result. And before long, there were hundreds of thousands of men and over a hundred medium-range missiles all pointed at China. 
However, China had already successfully tested its first nuclear weapon. So, needless to say, tensions were rising quickly. Political leaders on both sides realized the danger and began taking steps to minimize the quickly escalating matter. The Soviet Prime Minister flew and met with his Chinese counterpart at the Beijing airport. Both agreed to send ambassadors to the disputed region to negotiate. But in the end, this dispute would not technically end until 2003. So in 1969 until 2003, the Soviet Union and China were having this border dispute. That's a long time. Then, in 1972, while the Soviet Union was in a border dispute, they were also at odds with the United States. The Cold War was in full swing, and tensions between the two countries were also very high. But negotiations began between the two superpowers in Finland, and the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks Agreement, or SALT, one was signed. This agreement would stop the creation of new ballistic missile launchers. It limited the number of missiles they had pointed at each other, as well as limit the number of missile deployment sites. And as a fun fact, Nixon was the first U.S. president to actually visit Moscow. So in 1974, which is the year that Alexander was born, the Soviet Union also agreed to erase its trade policy restrictions so that it could return to, quote, most favored nation, unquote, trade status with the United States. So as you can see, the Soviet Union had a lot going on. I can't seem to find what the cost of living was just before he was born or just after, but I think that might be due to the fact that the economy was up and down, and it also depended on what part of Russia you lived in. But from the info we do have about his living conditions when he was growing up, it is quite reasonable to assume that he did not come from money. Alexander Petushkin's mother, Natasha, lived near Bitsa Park, which is a large area of forest with creeks and clearings. To give you a comparison, New York's Central Park is about 843 acres, which is a lot of area. Bitsa Park is 2,700 acres. It is massive. Surrounding the park are blocks and blocks of rundown apartment buildings standing side by side where tens of thousands of people live. The buildings were several stories high and also the first in a large-scale public housing project. This area was described as grim, rusted, and called Zopamira or asshole of the world. Needless to say, it was not a neat, tidy, or considered super safe neighborhood. So his mother had lived in the same two-bedroom apartment on the fifth floor of a nothing special building since she was 11 years old back in 1963. People who lived in these public housing buildings rarely left and for the most part, there were far too many people stuffed into each apartment. Natasha grew up, she got married, and at 22 years old, she had a baby boy she named Alexander. When the baby was only nine months old, though, her husband abandoned their little family, and she began to raise him as a single mother. 
She did like where she and Alexander lived because it was so close to the forest in the park. So the neighbors spoke of Alexander as a baby and a toddler, as a young, young child, saying he was a happy child, always pleasant and polite, and that he truly loved animals. That's what stood out the most. There's one story that is told by a neighbor who found little Alexander on some back steps, completely beside himself and crying because he had lost his pet cat. He was quite sociable, seemed like a very normal child. All of that changed when he was four years old. His mother took him to the playground to play. He was swinging on a swing set when he suddenly fell off backwards. And then while he was sitting back up, the swing came back and slammed into the front of his forehead. So to give you an idea, the bones in the skulls of toddlers and small children are not as thick and not near as strong as an adult's. His head injury was severe enough that it was thought to have damaged the prefrontal cortex. So let's talk about what that means. The prefrontal cortex is in the very front portion of your brain, just behind your forehead, and it is part of the frontal lobe. We use our frontal lobes every day, and it is responsible for our ability to plan complex cognitive behavior, how we express our personalities, how we make decisions, and how we control our social behavior. Basically, this part of our brain organizes thoughts and actions based on our internal goals. So then the prefrontal cortex is sort of the area that takes care of the executive functioning, which helps us differentiate and organize conflicting thoughts, what we decide is good or bad, deciding which things are similar compared to differences, consequences of good and bad behaviors, um, being able to predict the outcomes of our actions, and being able to control our urges so that we display socially acceptable behaviors. It processes our feelings of shame, guilt, compassion, and empathy. Damage to this area, even if it is slight, can result in an impaired ability to make good choices and recognize what the consequences will be for undesirable behaviors. It can cause an increase in irritability and make controlling and regulating our behavior much more difficult. There is a marked increase in impulsive behaviors and a lack of self-control. So in other words, it's not a good deal. So it's not surprising that after Alexander experienced this head injury, his personality changed. His peers and his early teachers stated that he had become aggressive and started showing a lack of impulse control. However, the injury didn't actually affect his overall very high intelligence at all, and he was in fact an expert chess player. But when his behavior did a complete 180, the kids began to bully him horribly, and when talking about him, they would call him, quote, that retard. So he began to isolate more and more, and his temper became increasingly hostile. So his mother decided to put him in a school for children with learning disabilities. Now, I realize why she did that. His behavior had become very difficult and the bullying intensified that and we all know teachers have enough on their plates as it is. But he did not have a learning disability. This change in schools affected his self-esteem greatly and in turn 
only made his anger and lack of impulse control worse. His mother didn't know what to do to help her son, whom she did love and adore. Alexander's maternal grandfather decided to step in. He knew the boy needed a strong male role model in his life, since Alexander's father had abandoned him and his mother when he was just a baby. His grandfather clearly saw that Alexander was highly intelligent and that the school he was attending was not going to foster that intelligence. The school focused more on dealing with the actual learning disabled kids and Alexander needed much more of a challenge. Alexander was also not involved in any outside activities. He mostly just kept to himself. So his grandfather moved him in with him and began fostering the boy's talents. He was an adolescent by this time. Um, he knew his grandson absolutely loved playing chess, and he had an extraordinary talent for it. So his grandfather took him down to Bitsa Park so that he could challenge the old men that sat at the tables to play chess every day. I think we've all seen the pictures and little videos. Alexander nearly dominated every game. Other people would come to watch this boy play chess and beat the old coots who gossiped and bragged about how good they were. This must have given Alexander a much needed boost of confidence. He had found an outlet to help him manage his aggressive tendencies through the competitiveness of the game. He got a lot of positive attention from the sport and he did show signs of happiness. And then suddenly... When Alexander was a teenager, his grandfather died. As you can imagine, this devastated the teen greatly. Though he loved his mother completely, his grandfather had been so important in his life. He had understood what Alexander needed. His grandfather was his true best friend. So he was forced to move back into his mother's apartment and go back to the public school that he had been bullied so badly at. He became deeply depressed, withdrawn, and began isolating. He was often seen walking his dog through the park alone. Then, not long after, his dog died. This made his depression even worse, as Alexander absolutely loved that dog. The devastation of the two losses was more than he could stand. To try to keep his aggressions and anger under control, and also to help numb the pain from the loss of his grandfather and his dog, he began to drink vodka, and a lot of it. He was still able to play chess, uh, both at home and in the exhibition games in Bitsa Park, but now he was joining the other men in drinking vodka, though unlike them, he could play without being greatly affected by the alcohol. When he wasn't playing chess, he began to lift weights and work out. His body became strong and quite muscular but he used his size to bully and intimidate younger children. Of course, the girls began to notice him as he had grown into quite a handsome teenager. And though he is not gay, he didn't seem to pay a lot of attention to girls either. Alexander began taking a video camera with him, crossing paths with children, then filming himself threatening them. Once, he held a young child by their leg upside down and he said to the camera, quote, you are in my power now. I am going to drop you from the window and you will fall 15 meters to your death. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Unquote. Of course, the child was terrified. He would then watch these videos over and over, which gave him a great sense of power. In 1992, when Alexander Pachushkin was 18 years old, he began following the trial of the Soviet Union's worst serial killer, Andrei Chikatilo. And yes, of course, we will cover him in a future podcast. So stay tuned. It is thought that Alexander became fascinated with the murderer. Also during this time, watching his threatening videos were no longer helping him control his violent urges. His first murder soon followed. Alexander later said that his then-girlfriend Olga had dumped him to date a friend of his. As I'm sure anyone could understand that he was enraged by this. So he lured the unsuspecting friend up into a building, strangled the man to death, and then threw his body out of a fifth floor window. His second murder in the same year was when he invited another school friend to go on a quote, killing expedition. Pachushkin said that they were going to go out to find someone to kill. And his friend mistakenly thought it was a joke and went along the walk with Alexander cutting up and not taking it seriously and Alexander noticed this so he murdered him instead Alexander was questioned about those murders but there just wasn't enough evidence and the police let him go it isn't known if this scared him enough to stop him for some years but he didn't kill again until 2001 so his first murders were in 1992 he didn't kill again until 2001 During this quiet time, he got a job at a local grocery store, and he was leading a very normal, average life. He did have relationships with women, and even thought about marriage and having a family, but he was just not able to calm his mind enough and settle down. Then nearly 10 years after his first murders, he started killing again. No one knows for sure what the catalyst was. What we do know is that Alexander began luring older men who had alcohol problems by asking them to drink with him. He would then get them to follow him into a more remote part of Pizza Park, telling them he had buried his beloved dog in a certain spot and he wanted them to drink in remembrance with him. And then he would murder them. Sometimes he would throw them down into very deep sewage pits that were 30 feet deep. And there was a whole network of huge pipes that ran underground for managing the city's waste. These victims would drown due to the rushing water below or the impact from the drop would kill them alone. In the beginning part of his murders, he would sometimes strangle, but then as time went on and it got more intense, he would bludgeon them in the head with a hammer until he split their skulls open. He would then take the almost empty vodka bottle and shove it into a gaping wound in their head. He knew the alcohol would finish off the brain. He would 
also always attack from behind to keep from getting blood on his clothes, or that's what he said. I disagree, though. The act of creating that level of trauma is going to create blood splatter no matter which way the victim is facing. To me, and this is just my opinion, it made it easier to not have to look the person in the face. Being able to see their face in possible shock and horror at the moment of realization, to see that in their eyes, is very personal. Alexander would have had to really connect that person's aspect to his ending their life, and he didn't want that. But again, that's just my opinion. Facing away is less personal. And you see, most of his victims were elderly men whom he already knew, usually from the park, the neighborhood, or from the chess games. Some were homeless, some were bums, some were drug addicts, but only a few of his victims were actually women and children. One female victim had tiny stakes hammered into her skull and around her eyes. For Alexander, there was no sexual element to his murders. He did not touch any of his victims in any sexual manner. Ten of his victims lived in the same apartment complex that he did, and yet no one suspected it was him at all. In the Soviet Union, the families of the missing people had to wait three days before they could file an official missing persons report with the local police. That alone is a serious issue but also the police were known for being corrupt. They drank, they accepted bribes, and they rarely investigated these reports. The neighbors began to speculate what was happening to the people that disappeared. Could it be the mafia, which is a very real thing in Moscow? All they knew was that people were disappearing and everyone was scared. Two of his victims survived. The first was a girl he had taken out on a date. He took her out to the park, then he shoved her into a deep sewage pit. But she managed to swim over to an unused pipe in the pitch blackness and find a way to climb out of it. She went to the police, but they never investigated. The second to survive was a 14-year-old boy whom Alexander had thought he had killed by strangulation. The teen reported him to the police and again, he was ignored. But outside of a small handful, his victims were all older men. Now, experts who have studied Pachushkin say that the reason he chose this age group above all was out of a feeling of abandonment by his father and his grandfather. Alexander said that he chose alcoholics and drug addicts because he knew that they would be easy and he knew they would not be missed. Most serial killers take some form of souvenir as their trophy after they murder their victim. Jewelry, ID cards, an article of clothing, Polaroid pictures, sometimes even actual body parts. These help the serial killer remember the details of the murder to help keep the fantasy alive in their mind. But Alexander didn't do that. Instead, he would, after a fresh kill, go home and open his small notebook and write a number into a square. You see, he had drawn a chessboard in his notebook. That's 64 squares, and he intended to fill every one of them with a mark. That would mean a victim. The locals who lived in that area near the park began to think the murderer must be someone that everyone knew. 
they would gather on their balconies and gossip about who it could potentially be as they watched their neighbors walk by on the sidewalk below. But there was an overall feeling of hopelessness because they knew their circumstances. They were poor Russian people living in a crumbling urban government housing environment and they felt like they didn't matter. In no way did they ever suspect it was Alexander, who they actually called Sasha. It's a common nickname for Alexander in Russia. He was quiet and he was a loner, but everyone knew him as a person who absolutely loved animals, who kept his steady job at the grocery store, and he was always pleasant to everyone. This idea of what kind of person he was was exactly how he got his victims to go with him into the park. A good portion of them knew who he was and walked with him willingly, happily. For one of his victims, Alexander waited and watched his intended target for over an hour, waiting for people to leave the park and go in for the evening. Once his victim was alone, he approached the older man, plied him with alcohol, and they went for a walk into the woods. Petushkin asked the man that, if he had one wish, what would it be? The man replied that he'd like to be able to stop drinking. Alexander told him, quote, I promise you, today will be the day that you stop drinking. He then bashed the man's head in with a hammer and shoved his body into the sewage pit. He knew if the head injury didn't kill this man, the impact would. So for five years, his murders became more and more brutal. He stopped bothering to try to conceal the bodies once he was done. But then in June of 2006, his bravado finally backfired. One of the managers at the grocery store Alexander worked at said that he was a good-natured employee and he was polite and he was well-mannered with customers. His co-workers must have agreed because when he asked a woman whom he worked with to take a stroll in the park with him, she agreed. She went home and left a note for a relative with Alexander's telephone number on it and out the door she went. Alexander later stated that they had decided to have a picnic in the park and they walked to a secluded area. And as she mulled around, he said he sat there for quite a while trying to decide if he wanted to kill her or not. He said he eventually decided to kill her because he convinced himself that if he didn't, he wouldn't be able to stand it later. He took a hammer out of his bag he carried and he bludgeoned her in the back of the head. He then took a bottle of vodka that was not entirely empty and shoved it into the back of her skull. When her body was found later, they searched her home and found a note. The number was traced to Alexander. The police then watched surveillance footage and saw him with the woman the day she died at a metro station. 33-year-old Alexander was then arrested. At first he denied everything, but it didn't take long for him to change his mind. He confessed to 63 murders, but was ultimately found guilty of 48. Now, before we get into the trial and the sentencing, here are some quotes from him. Quote, For me, life without murder is like life without food. 
I felt like a father of all those people since it was I who opened the door for them to another world. Another quote. The first murder is like first love. It's unforgettable. The closer the person is to you, the more pleasant it is to kill them. And the final quote. Some people are born ultimately to be killed by me. So during the trial, he was put on display in a reinforced glass cage-like box for the whole courtroom to see. He sat there, mostly looking down at his feet, but he also paced back and forth and swayed side to side like a caged animal. When they asked him if he had any regrets, he said, quote, Yes, I regret you arrested me so early. I was planning to murder another woman in two days' time. He showed no remorse at all. His trial lasted six weeks, and the jury took only three hours to come to a unanimous decision. And on Monday, October 29, 2007, the judge stated, quote, In view of the seriousness of the crimes committed and the exceptional danger to society of the defendant himself, and in order to establish social justice and prevent new crimes, the court considers it necessary to sentence Pichushkin for committing especially grave crimes to life imprisonment. The judge then asked him if he understood his sentence, to which Alexander replied, quote, I'm not deaf, I understood, unquote. He was then sent to a Siberian jail called Polar Owl. The first 15 years of his sentence, he will be forced to be in solitary confinement. So as of this recording in 2019, he has three more years in solitary. He states that if he were released now, he would immediately kill at least two people just to calm his nerves. But at the same time, he also says that he has devoted all of his time to reading about philosophy. And in 2016, he became engaged to one of his serial killer groupie fans, though the prison has officially stopped letting them communicate through letters. Alexander is classified as a process-focused serial killer, meaning he derives pleasure from the pain and torture his victims feel. It's in the experiencing the torture and the slow death of his victims that he craves. Then within the types of process-focused killers, he is subcategorized as a power-seeking motive type. That means he likes the feeling of being in charge of his victims, whether they live or die. To him, it's playing God. He was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, which displays as a need for admiration and a lack of empathy. They have a high level of self-importance and want to be ultimately successful and to really just be admired. And they often feel superior to everyone else. So if you're curious, I'm going to insert a clip of his voice. Now I can't completely verify what he is saying because I unfortunately do not speak fluent Russian, though disclaimer, I wish I did. But from what I see, he says, quote, some people are ultimately born to be killed by me. So here's the audio clip. Рождается только для того, чтобы я их убил. Вот потому, 
So, in summation, I don't think that Alexander Petrushkin was actually born to kill. Could he have had narcissistic tendencies naturally? Sure. He was, by all accounts, highly intelligent and a chess master. It isn't uncommon for people of that caliber to let that go to their heads, so to speak. But I think it was the unfortunate brain injury that actually impacted his personality, his impulse control, and aggressiveness that he was just not able to control. By the way, he's still alive today. So what do you think? You can leave me comments on my Instagram page, at Serial underscore Killing, or now you can leave me comments on my new YouTube page, where I am in the process of posting these podcasts there. There's not going to be any real visuals, but I just wanted to open another platform where you guys can communicate with me. The page is under Serial Killing, a podcast. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.